We'll open up your Bibles, please, to First Kings chapter 11. We need the Lord right. We're going to go to the Lord right away in prayer and jump in. It's a fairly lengthy chapter, and I don't know if we're going to get through it all, but we do have to get through, and I don't it's the wrong way to say that, but we do have to get through a, a girthy part of the text that uh, will require us to really be on our game and our minds and hearts in the right place. So go to the Lord and pray with me, if you would, please. Father, I want to thank you for this beautiful text, and I want to thank you for all the warnings that are in it, I want to thank you for the fact that you meet us here and you draw us in and you give us a chance to learn of you and to learn from other people's mistakes. So please, Lord, today, speak to us in a way we can understand. God, I pray that you would speak profoundly to each one of us individually, right where we need to hear, but also corporately as a family, and that your word would burst open and come alive. Let your word really minister Lord, and let us be in the position to receive what it is you have for each of us tonight. So thank you, Lord, for this. Please bless this time. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's say tonight, is it what any? Please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. In our previous chapter, the Queen of Sheba has given over 127 million pounds worth of, and that's in a financial, you know, monetary unit, of gold and precious stones and an unrepeatable amount of spices. What does he do with it? He takes a throne that he's made out of ivory and he covers it in gold. Then there's this amazing wood that shows up that all kinds of people like to debate over what's really obvious from the taxes. It's really cool. And he takes it and he makes steps for himself and for God. That's what he does with it. Annually, he's receiving over 70 million pounds worth of gold. And what does he do with it? He turns it into 500 shields worth over 58 million pounds. And I start to think about this. Shields protect us. We need them because it's going to come at us whether we like it or not. Now, that's not pessimistic. I am a hopeful, constant, chronic, and irritating optimist. But there's no doubt life's going to come at you whether you're, you know, whether you want it or not. And I've often said that the big difference between sort of playing the game out on the field here. Uh, in some sport and life is only in life do you get tackled whether you're on the bench or not, normally. And it tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, 16, that above all, above all, beyond all of the other things that are in our armament, above, beyond all, above all of those, take the shield of faith with, with which you will be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. When our shield is just a decoration, we are advertising that our guard is down. What Solomon has done is he's taken 500 shields he has made into a decorative, they're too heavy to do anything really with, except hang up on walls, and that's what you really have, worth 58 million. That's what we have here. And, in, and please hear me on this. It is so easy to forget that often the greatest battles we fight are not in our poverty, but in our luxury, there's something that happens in our luxury that we are reminded in chapters like the last and this one that we get to this place where we get so comfortable we put our guard down. Those shields are supposed to be there to remind us that the fight will always there be before us. I'm sorry, the, will always there be before us as long as we live here on earth. They're not to decorate our homes. 
but they are to admonish our hearts, to be constantly on our guards. There is no coasting. I remember the first time I read Proverbs, I believe it's 6.10, where it tells us a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. And he says, and so poverty comes upon you like a prowler in your need, like an armed man. And I believe the same thing is said in verbatim in Proverbs chapter 24, uh, verses 33 and 34. And the whole point of it, I remember reading, was more than just, you're not going to have money. You know, you just want to sleep away everything. Well, you're not going to have any money. I recognize in regards to my walk that the moment I just want to sort of, yeah, I'll coast, you know, things have been good and we've had a lot of victories in the past and we've seen really cool things. So let's just hang some shields up so people can hear about all the cool things my dad did back in the day. Unfortunately, Solomon really hasn't known war. And Solomon has been raised, though there have been obviously very tragic moments when his father has had to flee over the, over the Mount of Olives. <clears throat> Because of his other, because of one of his half brothers, Absalom, was trying to kill dad. And yet in it, he has grown up a king's kid. Now, what we read in 1 Kings 10 27 is that he made silver as common as, in Jerusalem as stones. And he made cedar trees as abundant, as abundant as sycamores, which are in the lowland. And I get the idea here. I mean, how do I play that in my own life? I realize what was rare is now common. Think about why gold is so expensive. Why diamonds are so expensive. It isn't because they're really shiny, because you can get the same thing in most essence from a lot of things that are created that, you know, really, to be honest, aren't that expensive. The difference is the rare. And the more rare something is, often the more expensive or valuable it becomes. When something becomes much more common, it ceases to appear valuable to us. And I recognize that that's been the case here. That which was rare, which therefore was valuable, now, to be honest, was really just become common and therefore really not that big of a deal. I can't help but think about in Acts chapter 19, verse 11, it tells us that the Lord God, he worked, now God worked unusual miracles at the hands of Paul. And I always think, unusual miracles? Isn't a miracle, by virtue of it being a miracle, an unusual thing? The fact that God is to say that God worked unusual miracles. And I get the idea that we live in the miraculous. Think about it. As a Christian, we live in the miraculous. We watch people come to know him. We watch our lives transform. We watch things that once had claws deep inside of us, ripped away from us, and no longer dominating our lives like they used to. And we forget that we live in the miraculous. And what happens is, remember before we knew the Lord, a miracle was an extremely rare thing. Now miracles are so common in our lives. To be honest, they've just stopped having their impact and the value that they should have. Well, unfortunately, that's kind of Solomon's life at this moment. And we, were, we looked last time, remember, at Deuteronomy chapter 17, where we saw specific requirements for a king. He was obviously supposed to be Jewish, supposed to be from among their people, but in, in verses 16 and 17, there were three things he was not to multiply. Could you tell me what those three things are? Does anyone remember? Wives. wives. Excellent. Wives, horses, and silver and gold. Not just gold, by the way. It does say multiply silver and gold. At this point, silver has been so multiplied, it's like rocks. And of course, in Israel, rock is the issue. That would be like saying here he made it as common as rain in London. That's kind of the idea here. What's interesting is, I don't know if you've ever heard of 
this particular sort of document that was signed by Billy Graham back in the day. And there were three areas. I remember him speaking about it. It was the gold, the girls, and the glory. And you were always to make sure that none of those things were ever going to get away from you. You know, in other words, you were not going to ever be careless in any of those areas. And um, I'm trying to think of where... Uh, Damien Kyle is a pastor of a Calvary Chapel in this particular town, but it was called the that accord. I can't remember where it, is, where it is. But anyways, all of that to say that the, the idea was you really don't want to be careless in the areas of the gold, the girls, or the glory. Now, obviously, as your gal, there's obviously the issue. The, the issue is love, obviously, and what's defined as love. And it's interesting because... That's what we have. Horses, of course, is your glory because in the end of it all, you have all the security and you've kind of got this big entourage. The wives, that's clear. That's the girls. And then the multiplying the silver and gold, that's clearly the gold. Now, of those three, two of them have already been clearly multiplied in the last chapter. Which two? Horses and silver and gold, right? And, and we, and by the way, he even told us there was one specific place we were not to go to get those horses. Where was that? Egypt, look at you guys, whipping out that stuff. And that is really key. Do you remember, uh, up to this point, we do know that Solomon's already married, and he married at least one gal. Where was she from? She was from Egypt. And I think that that tells us something right away, that Solomon becomes king and he gets a girl, and the girl that he marries happens to be from Egypt. And already we kind of get this hint all the way in the beginning that Solomon still has something in his heart that is attached to the world they came from as Israel. The place of slavery, the place of bondage. Don't forget that. And it was the area of love. Now, I can tell you, of all the areas that seem to be effective in taking a brother down or a sister down, love seems to be by far the most effective. And I'm using the term very loosely. And we get this idea somewhere down the line where you just, you, you, you go, I'm going to go crazy unless I'm married. I'm com- feeling so incomplete. And I remember before I, Suzanne and I got married, somebody sat me down and I remember them telling me one of those few moments where I was like really good advice before uh, I actually got involved in the word and, and just said, you know, it is so much better. Or I should say this, he said it was so much worse I don't want to ruin the statement. I have to make sure it's right in my head. He says, it is so much better to be single and wishing you were married than married and wishing you were single. Solomon clearly is missing it. And there's been one area in Solomon's heart that has really never been handed over to God. And I'm going to dare say it, it was his sexuality. And it's amazing because we live in that culture now. It's like, God, you can handle this or this or this, but don't you dare touch that area. That's my area. Well, not if he's to be Lord of all. And so we move from this idea that he was supposed to instead write himself a copy of the book of, you know, the Torah, read it every day of his life so that he wouldn't be exalting himself above all of his brethren, but rather, and then he wouldn't turn aside to the right hand or to the left, and therefore his days would be prolonged. Well, look at verse 1 now of 1 Kings 11. King Solomon loved many foreign women. 
as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, as if that was bad enough. Now, please understand, from a secular perspective, marrying your neighbor's princess isn't a bad idea because you can pretty much bet they're not going to invade and try to blow you up if their daughter's there. I get that from a political perspective, except God told us why we shouldn't do that. And it wasn't because he didn't just, he didn't want really cute babies because they were mixed race. It was because he, he, and he warned us, and by the way, we'll get to that. But in Deuteronomy 7, I should just get there now. In Deuteronomy 7, when God says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land, which you go to possess, and he casts out many nations from before you, the Hittites, the Gregishites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, and Hivites, and Jebusites. Seven nations greater than you, by the way. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. He goes, God says, I know best. And I want to warn you, no area has a greater influence than the area of quote unquote love to turn people away from me. Now, that doesn't mean you can't fall in love in, in, with someone and still love God. But again, the idea of foreign is someone who doesn't love the Lord that you claim is the most important person in your life. How can I love my wife and then claim to love someone who is her enemy, who has declared war on her? It doesn't make any sense. He goes, they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you to destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. Destroy their altars. Break down their sacred pillars. Cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images in the fire. In other words, he goes, don't even give an opportunity for you to sniff it out to see what it's like. I don't even want there to be anything but ashes there because I don't want anyone to go, wow, what was here? What did they do? I want to be an expert. Oh, I'm not going to really do it. And we lie to ourselves and say that's the case. Now look at, from an early age, we would have this talk with both of our daughters. We talk about every person you meet as an acquaintance. In one way or another, you're acquainted enough to know they exist. But a person graduates to a friend. Because a friend has the privilege of influence in your life. And you may not be able to pick every acquaintance, but you can pick your friends. The question is, are you wise enough to choose people to whom you know that the very life they live will influence you in a proper way? Because once you give them the right of influence, you will be led whether you know it or not. And among all the friends that you have, when romance becomes involved, they more than anyone will have the greatest influence. You must be even more diligent and careful to whom you open your heart in such a way. We are told to guard our hearts, for out of it flows the wellspring of life. We get the idea that it's like, the very issues of life are going to flow from that heart. And I've heard it said many times, a heart has this terrible habit of making a convert of your mind. You can know in your mind what's right and wrong, but your heart can change that. It can bend the truth so much that the truth isn't the truth anymore. Belittle the sin until it's done 
and convince you somehow you have a right to do it. I understand why Jeremiah tells us the heart is the most deceitful thing that exists. If he says deceitful above all things, that means your heart's even more deceitful, mine too, than Satan. And by the way, more effective because you'll listen to your heart. And we have enough songs out there and Disney helps us to try to tell us that we're not only to listen to it, but to follow it. And by the way, just so you know, Proverbs tells us, he who follows their heart is a fool. So you either have to pick Proverbs or you have to pick Disney. But in that, get the idea that he said, well, look at this is why God has to give us a new heart. And that was his promise. Was that in this new covenant, you need a new heart. Now, Solomon is turning aside because of the very thing God had already warned him. Now, it's in Deuteronomy. That's the fifth of the five books. Solomon is supposed to be writing out and reading himself, which in other words, if Solomon was doing that, he would get this because it's right here. And it says Solomon loved many foreign women as well as the daughter of Pharaoh. For instance, the women of the Moabites, which by the way, you may be aware of, the Moabites was the product of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his oldest daughter. By the way, Moab literally means like dad. A little weird. Then you have Ammonites, and they're, by the way, the product of the second daughter of Lot and his incestuous relationship with his daughter. Then we have the Edomites, who, by the way, was Jacob's brother, his twin brother, if you remember, who, by the way, and hear me on this, traded his birthright, which was of infinite value, for a bowl of red stew, for which then he gets called Edom, which means red. That is important because, get this, he had something really precious that was given to him as a son. As a son, he was given this precious thing, and he traded it in for a moment of pleasure. Sounds like Solomon's story. And then the Sidonians, the son of Canaan, according to Genesis 10. And the Hittites, according to Genesis 15, 18, they're one of, actually, uh, I should say in that sense, uh, they're at verse 20, that they're one of the group of people, by the way, that have to be driven out of the land. It says, from the nations of whom the Lord has said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, again, Deuteronomy 7, nor are they with you, for surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. This is why Paul says to the Corinthians, do not be unequally yoked. Because what fellowship does light have with darkness? It isn't just that you're two human beings with lonely desires. He goes, in the most base sense, you are a child of light. You belong to the king of kings and they belong to darkness. Fundamentally and foundationally, you do not have in common the most fundamental thing in your life. And if you don't have that in common, why in the world are you trying to patch up other areas? Well, and God warns us, you really want to do that. This isn't about a person of a different color marrying a different color. This isn't about a person from a different culture marrying a person of a different culture. This is about a Christian who serves Jesus marrying somebody who serves Jesus or not. And my recommendation is, remember, if you're going to open your heart to that individual, I mean, if you get married and your heart isn't open, that's bad too. But if you're, if you're going to open your heart to someone, let it be someone that is so in love with Jesus that you're like, I want to be more like that. 
Now, when you find two people that see that in each other, that's going to be an amazing relationship. But you find someone that like, well, they're breathing and they call themselves a Christian. I'm like, Satan would call himself a Christian too. Just to go out with you and lead you away from the Lord, he'd be more than happy to do that. And some of you are like, yeah, I know I've dated Satan. I'm sure of it. Well, look at, and by the way, Solomon is an overachiever in sin, just like some of us. And he says, verse 3, he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. Now, I don't know how many people, I mean, when you talk about some people who write their, their books, I know Kareem Abdul-Jabbar boasted about how many gals that he was able to sort of take down or however you want to play that. In the end of it all, there is nothing wise about this. And I want to warn you, in your own time, let me suggest this for you. Read the book of Proverbs, it's 31 chapters. It's a, very, it's a relatively short book. And then read the book of Ecclesiastes and see the difference. The book of Proverbs, there is meaning behind a snake in the ground, ants in a queue. There is a meaning behind everything from the storms that come to the seasons. It's like somewhere you go, wow, look at this. Everything makes sense. And everything just seemed to be big and new and wondrous. And then you read Ecclesiastes and it's like, it's all meaningless. There's nothing new under the sun. You go, how do you take a person who starts from big wide-eyed wonder, God is amazing, everything makes sense, to it's all meaningless. And might I suggest in between them is the Song of Solomon. Forgive me for sort of ripping out perhaps some of the sort of saucy romance that seems to be in it. But as a songwriter, I look at the Song of Solomon, and this is the basic story. Well, spoiler alert. There's a king, and that king is fine. His legs are like pillars of bronze. Strange, by the way. Because Solomon did have a couple pillars of bronze in front of the temple. And basically, you can imagine, it's like, and I have a nine-pack, and I have abs that go on for days, and I can crack a walnut with my belly button. It means like you get the idea. But in all of that, so there is this king, and he's clearly fine. And then there's this girl. And this girl, though she's pretty, she's got to have the king. And she runs through, and the king's kind of playing peekaboo hide-and-seek with her. She can't seem to find him because he seems like he's just so busy with so many other things. And so she runs through neighborhoods where she gets beat up and molested. I mean, she gets abused in so many ways, but it doesn't stop her from wanting to get to the king because he's so cute. 
And of course, he looks at her and just goes, "Girl, you fine. When we can we when can we hug and kiss?" I mean, that's kind of his side of it. And it's like this duet. She's like, "I gotta have you. I gotta have you. Oh, where are you? I gotta have you." And he's like, "Oh, you fine, girl. Let's go to the garden." You know. And then the reason I say that is, it's one thing when you kind of read the story and people go, "You know, it's kind of like the church and Jesus." Well, if it is, let me just suggest to you, Jesus is the girl in the story because she's the one in hot pursuit. Although it super cheapens Jesus's heart for us, but she's constantly. Going like getting beat up and abused and all that. But for a king that really, to be honest, isn't that concerned about her. Nowhere in it is he's like, oh my goodness, I can't believe you got beat up like this. Where are those guys? I'll go find them. You would think a decent guy would do that. But she's just got to have them. The scariest part is, who writes the story, this song about an awesome king and a girl that's got to have them? A king. That tells you something. And I mean, look at, as a songwriter, your heart's laid bare mostly with the songs you write. I mean, you're going to get more out of that than you probably will for most things because it's the one thing that's rather intimate and laid on display. This is why when someone's like, oh, I love Jesus and all that, but check out all my songs and they have nothing to do with them. I'm like, there's something really fundamentally missing here. And the reason I say that is, is that Solomon's in this place. Where, man, he, I mean, how many girls do you go through? How far do you have to go before you just go, this just really isn't working? But you watch this. You know, you got drunk once with a couple beers, and you thought, wow, this is going crazy. And, but then the next time, a couple beers wasn't enough. So then it became a bunch of beers. And then it became a bunch of hard shots. And then it became something that involved, you know, that you had to light up and smoke. And then it became something you had to inject. And you keep going, and somewhere down the line, you're like, well, that doesn't work anymore. But if I keep trying and adding sooner or later it's going to satisfy it just doesn't what part of us goes well i try a little bit and it didn't satisfy i should try a lot of it and when that doesn't satisfy i should just try more what part of our brain doesn't go maybe that's just the wrong way but how many girls i mean how many girls do you think solomon could remember i mean if you had seven at least you can name them a day of the year If you had 365, you could name them a day of the year in that sense. Hey, June 1st. But when you've got a thousand, how do you do that? Solomon's gone metric and he's gone mental in doing so. And it tells us here, verse 4, so it was when Solomon was old. It doesn't say they immediately turned his heart away. And I wonder how long Solomon fooled himself. He's like, well, I got a couple girls. Okay, so I got a hundred. But they're not going to turn my heart away. Hey, let's get some of those Syrophoenician gals. That's something new and exotic. Let's bring a few of those in. Hey, you know, we're bringing in ivory and apes and weird wood and all that. Hey, while you're there, why don't you like, pick up a couple of the cuties from the island just, just because I don't, you know, and imagine it's like everywhere that, they, you know, it's like people are showing brochures. The king is like, whoa, I don't know if I've ever actually kissed a Fijian girl before. Could you bring one of those? I mean, how sad is that? And somewhere down the line in all of it, it says when he was old, they turned his heart away. So maybe for a while he felt like he, he was still had this under wraps and there's all of these girls influencing his life one way or another. But what's really clear is is that Solomon's not converting anyone, but they are converting him. And probably everyone saw it but him. 
Love is an extremely, and I'm using that term loosely, is an extremely powerful steering tool. And the heart of the battle is the battle of the heart. And this luxury that Solomon's experiencing has eased his heart to be unwatchful so that false love can step in and lead him by bridle away from the God who is true love to the misery and failure of its counterfeit. And you know, I guarantee you, if you're honest and you've walked with the Lord for any period of time, you can tell me stories too of people that you knew seemed so on fire for the Lord. And now you're like, where in the world are they? And the difference was that there was this hole in their heart they were convinced a human being had to meet. Hey, at every given moment in your life, you will either be at a state of need or a state of overflow. And if you're at a state of need and you meet another person in a state of need, you are developing a relationship where you already are saying, I need you to fill a spot in me. And that's two people coming with straws to suck out of the other one something they think they need. There is never a healthy relationship built on such a foundation. Let's be honest. So it was when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods because his heart was not loyal or his heart was not complete or he didn't give all of his heart to the Lord his God. There was a part that he just somehow felt he had a right to keep to himself. And I want to warn you, any part of your heart, and I'm speaking to myself too here, any part of my heart that I think it's sort of like, stay out of the West Wing, God. You know, any part that I think I should have sovereignty over instead of him is going to be the area the enemy will build a camp there and, and I will be taken down by the sin I allow in that area. Because any area I do not allow the Lord to be the Lord of, it's clearly an idol by virtue of that alone. And it says, look it. Solomon had an area of his heart that just didn't belong to the Lord. He goes, but his father, David, David actually gave the Lord all of it. That's what he says in verse 4. But wait a minute, didn't David kill someone? Didn't David commit adultery, matter of fact, with Solomon's mom? Yeah. And we're, and by the way, God never says it's anything but sin. But the one thing David never did was swap gods. Now that is never licensed to sin. And if we embrace that concept, our heart's already in the wrong place to start with, let's be honest. But Peter... I remind you, denied that he even knew Jesus and called a curse down on himself as collateral. Judas Iscariot never denied that he knew Jesus. Led his arresting party, and it seems clear that he didn't expect Jesus to be treated the way he was. And experienced remorse. Both of the men did. 
But the biggest difference between Judas Iscariot and Peter was not which one was sinless, but rather what they did with that sin. Peter would ultimately take it back to the Lord, where Judas would take the matters into his own hands. It tells us a righteous man may fall seven times, but will rise up again, but the wicked will fall by calamity. And the idea of it is a, a righteous man is not absent of sin, but they will get back up and they know where to go. And it tells us if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But the wicked, that's a different story altogether. In Second Corinthians, it tells us there's two different kinds of sorrow over that sin. There's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance and ultimately eternal life. And there's a worldly sorrow that leads to death. Just being sorry is not enough. What kind of sorrow are you doing? Are you taking it upon yourself or are you bringing it to Jesus where it belongs? Solomon, unlike his dad, I mean, Solomon doesn't murder anyone. Solomon, you say adultery, well, times 999, you get the idea here, but Solomon's heart was wide open to the influence of people that should never have influenced his heart. So when he was old, basically Solomon put the bridle on his mouth with the little bit thing you put in and he gave the reins to a bunch of gals and said, steer me. And David didn't do that. Verse 5. So now we start seeing the product of that. Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians. By the way, that's also, she's called Astarte. Uh, Sidonian, that's the god of, of fertility, sexuality, and war. And he went after Milcom. Now notice, by the way, it doesn't say that he just allowed in. He went after. You know the difference, right? Solomon didn't just let it in. Solomon went after it now. And he went after Milcom. We also know Milcom as Molech, the Ammonite god of sexuality, pleasure, and war. Which, by the way, the price for any of these was, to, was sacrificing your children. Solomon did evil at the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as did his father. Again, being reminded, Solomon instead built high places for Hamash, the abomination of Moab. You want to guess what Hamash is the god of? Pleasure, sexuality. You get a kind of a, are you getting a pattern here? What Solomon's going after, pleasure is not getting it for him. So he's looking anywhere he can to find it. He's going into the dungeons to try to figure out what am I missing because this is not satisfying. So with the Hamash, the abomination of Moab, and notice what it says in verse 7, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem. Does anyone know the hill that is east of Jerusalem? It's the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives was the same mountain his dad fled from his brother Absalom barefoot and weeping because his brother was trying to kill dad. It is this same mountain, by the way, where Lazarus would ultimately live with his sisters. But it is also the same mountain where Jesus would kneel in a garden that's called Gethsemane, which means the olive press. Appropriate place to have that would be a Mount of Olives. And Jesus is there sweating like drops of blood and then arrested because he is betrayed. That's the same place where now the heart of Solomon is being laid bare to sacrifice to an abomination is what God calls him. 
of pleasure from the Moabites. And I think Jesus, though, would show victory after his resurrection. Jesus would go to that mountain, the Mount of Olives. And it's a mountain a range, if you will. And he ascends from there to heaven. That's where Jesus ascends. Well, and he, by the way, also Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. God, remember, God of pleasure, sexuality, and war. And did likewise for all of his foreign wives. Likewise for all of his foreign wives. Come on in, girls. Be as weird and funky and as foreign and exotic as you want to be and bring your gods with you because clearly there's a hole in me and it isn't being filled. Maybe you're the one that will fill it. And he burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Again, Solomon was clearly not converting anyone here. He was being converted. And he is neck deep in all of these false gods of pleasure. And as the result of that, verse 9, the Lord became angry with Solomon because... His heart was turned away from the Lord God of Israel who had appeared to him twice. Remember, twice, the first time, God appears to him in Gibeon and says, hey, what what do you really want? And the second time, he's saying, Solomon, if you keep with me, if you keep my word, if you keep my commandments, Solomon, I'm going to so bless you. And there is forgiveness and restoration. You know I'm such a God. And it's like, you know that this is what we talked about. And notice what it says. God was angry at him and he appeared to him twice, verse 10, and had commanded, though he had appeared to him twice, he had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep the, what the Lord had commanded. And remember that word keep. You should, some of you are going to know this word well. The word keep is shamar, which means to guard. He didn't guard what God told him because your heart deafens your ears to hear what God really said and rewrites the script. And edits your history book. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, because you've done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Doesn't that sound a little bit like Saul, David's predecessor? He's like, because you have not done what I told you, I'm removing this and giving it to a neighbor greater than you, which was his was Solomon's dad. Now, one generation later, Solomon's basically hearing the same speech from God. Nevertheless, verse 12, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear it away from the whole kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Now, notice here, Solomon doesn't speak. David, his dad, God spoke to him, if you remember, in Second Samuel 7 and 8. And he's like, David, I know you want to build me a house, but I'm going to let your son do it instead. And David looks and sees the legacy of his own family and goes, awesome. Instead, it brings him into praise. God, who am I that you would give me this attention and that you would bless my children? David, and please hear me on this. When our hearts belong to the Lord, we are really concerned about the legacy we live and we leave. But Solomon has been so now drowning in these gods of pleasure, all of which the cover cost for that is to start sacrificing your children. How many children do you think Solomon had? And because of that, when God says, you're losing your legacy, I think Solomon's been sacrificing his legacy for quite a while. I don't know if it meant anything to him here. 
Now, the first thing that starts to happen when you turn your heart away from the Lord is your fruitfulness just sucks dry. You know the crazy part is? This son of his, when the people come to him, one of the things they're concerned about is Solomon is taxing them to death. This guy has all this money. Why in the world is he taxing his people? What does he need that he doesn't have? Well, quickly it tells us that the Lord's going to raise up a couple of adversaries. Verse 14. Now the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon. His name is Hadad the Edomite. Hadad, by the way, means fierce. And Edomite means he is from Jacob's twin brother. He's a descendant of the king of Edom. And this is the story. For what happened when David was in Edom, the Joab, the commander of the army, had gone up to bury the slain and after he had killed every male in Edom because for six months Joab remained there. Talk about a thorough guy. It's kind of OCD on this. Because for six months Joab remained there with all Israel until he had cut down every male of Edom. That Hadad fled to go to Egypt he and certain Edomites of his father's servants with him. Chedad was still a little child, by the way. It says, Then they arose from Midian and came to Paran. And when he took men from the, uh, with them from Paran, he came to Egypt, to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who gave him a house, appointed food for him, and gave him some land. And Chedad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh, so that he gave him a, as wife the sister of his own wife, that is, the sister of Queen Tapenis. Then the sister of Tapenes bore him Ganubath. Who names their son? His son. Whom Tapenes then weaned in Pharaoh's house. Ganubath was in Pharaoh's household among the sons of Pharaoh. So when Chedad heard in Egypt that David had, re- had, um, had rested with his fathers and that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, those are the two people he was fearful of, Chedad said to Pharaoh, let me depart that I may go to my own country. And Pharaoh said to him, Well, what have you lacked with me that suddenly you seek to go to your own country? So he said, Nothing, but let me go anyway. And then interesting how God ends the story there. He says, Why? What are you missing? He's like, Nothing, but can I go? I'm going. And he's like, That's all you need to know of the story. Now, hear me on this, because some of this should sound eerily familiar, by the way. So he says, Here's the first of these opposition. By the way, where is the guy coming from to come at Solomon. He's coming from Egypt. Did you notice that? Strange as that is, huh? He's coming from Egypt, which has been the problem from the beginning of Solomon's heart in this, is it still belonging to Egypt. And guess where the problem comes from? As far as Israel's concerned, Egypt is their past. Let's be honest. It was the place of slavery. It was the place of bondage. It was the place of hopelessness for four centuries. It was the, the sucky life that we came from. And unfortunately, something in Solomon was still attached to it. And it was the area of quote-unquote love that he just couldn't take over with him to let God reinvent it the way he should. And that can happen to any one of us. You come to Jesus and he says, I've got a whole new idea of love. And you're like, yeah, but I kind of like the old one. And you, somewhere in it, our heart still belongs a little bit there. So what happens? The first problem that Solomon arises, the first battle he's going to have to fight that seems in, in his face is the battle of his past. Doesn't that make sense? 
all of a sudden an old bondage rises back up and you're struggling with it. Though you do like, I never thought I'd struggle with this again. God clearly delivered me from this. But when you open your heart to Egypt, Egypt's going to make its way back in because, well, something you leave there is going to come back at you. What's interesting is, is God used Moses to get him out of there. I remind you, it was not only out of Egypt, but then ultimately into the promised land. And by the way, so that's two very distinct things, getting out of Egypt and then getting into the promised land. And it's important for a Christian to know it's not just leaving the old world you came from, but going into a place of fruitfulness God has for you. You know what's really important about that is where those places were. Where was Moses when God called him to deliver Israel? He was in Midian. But before that, I remind you, he was taken, if you remember, by the daughter of Pharaoh and made her own until he actually realized that he refused to take the riches of Egypt and call them his own because he would rather associate, and he considered greater riches, that which God had promised instead. So, boy, taken, though not part of the Egyptian world, taken in, adopted in essence by Pharaoh's daughter. By the way, Pharaoh's daughter was the one who picked the next Pharaoh for what it's worth and then bailed out of that, went to Midian. And when he went to Midian, he went to deliver the people. And when he brought the people out of, out of Egypt, they went to a specific place to spy the promised land in Numbers 13. And you know what that place was called? Paran. That was the place where they went, nah, we're not going to go in. We're like grasshoppers compared to them. So here are these major points, Egypt, Midian, and Paran. Did you get that? He goes, so let me tell you about this guy, Chadad. Chadad, by the way, he fled, and guess where he went? He went to Midian. And when he went to Midian, he gathered a crew there. And when he gathered a crew there, by the way, ultimately notice that the other two places he points out is Paran. He went from Midian, and he came to Paran. And from Paran, he came to Egypt. Interesting. Every one of those should be a warning to us. And God's going to do that. Remember the freedom when I brought you to a place of fruitfulness? Do you feel like you're on the other side of the river here? Why do you think that is? Are you craving for Egypt? Why are you craving for Egypt? What do you think that Egypt has to offer you? Well, the story is eerily familiar. By the way, one other thing, this enemy, this Hadad, is also married. Who did he marry? An Egyptian wife. Should that sound familiar? Huh. By the way, so did Moses, for what it's worth. Her name was Little Bird, Zipporah. Now, that's not the only problem we have. We have one more. Verse 22, And God raised up another adversary against him, Rezan, the kind of stuff that they make those cheap chairs out of. Uh, Rezan, the son of Eliada. Rezan, by the way, means heavy. Eliada means God knows. Who had fled from his lord, Chedadezer, king of Zobah. So he had gathered with him and became, uh, gathered men to him and became captain over a band of raiders when David killed those men of Zobah. That's 2 Samuel 8, by the way. After God had given him this whole promise of his legacy, David then starts just cleaning house. And he went to Damascus. Does anyone know where Damascus is in relationship to Israel? It's excellent. It's in the north. So guess what? Solomon's going to get it from the south with Chedad, and then he's going to get it from the north with Rizun. So he's going to get it from both sides. 
And it says, he went to Damascus, he dwelt there and reigned in Damascus. He was an adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon, besides the trouble that Hadad caused. He abhorred Israel and reigned over Syria. Now, by the way, Damascus has a very important point to it. We as Christians, um, because Damascus, when you think of Damascus, what story comes to your mind? Excellent. The conversion of a man who was seeking to kill Christians where Jesus revealed himself en route, for which then ultimately Saul at the time would say, who are you and what do you want me to do? Two very important questions. Who are you and what do you want me to do? Interesting, because when God spoke to Solomon, he's like, what would you like? And in the end of it all, if you're willing to follow me, you know who I am. I'm going to bless you. Well, Solomon's now getting it from both sides. Neither was necessary, but the whole point was, and hear me in this, can I say it lovingly? God wants you miserable when you're running from him because you are not created to run from him. Now, ultimately, we have in our last few verses here, though it seems like a great deal of verses, the story of a man named Yeroboam. This is besides these two guys who are clearly adversaries, and these were guys who have declared, in essence, declaring war, so to speak, on Solomon. Remember, when a kingdom changes and a king changes, that's the kingdom's most vulnerable. And so they're seizing this opportunity. But then Solomon's got this servant, and this is what it says, and I'll read to you this quickly because it teaches itself. Solomon's servant, Yeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite. It's important to know he's from the tribe of Ephraim, from Zerada whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow who also rebelled against the king. This is what caused it. This is what caused them to rebel against King Solomon. Solomon had built the Milo, repaired the damages to the new city of David, his father. And the man Yeroboam was a mighty man of valor. And Solomon, seeing that the young man was industrious, made him an officer over the labor force of the house of Joseph. Does this sound familiar? It's kind of like David, how David was a mighty man of valor and he got brought into Saul's household as his replacement. And you kind of see the same thing playing out here. Now it happened at that time when Yeroboam went out of Jerusalem that a prophet, Ahiyah, aha, means, by the way, brother, Yah like Yahweh, means God's brother, brother God, uh, the, the Shiloh night, remember Shiloh was where the, temp, the tabernacle was prior to um, its destruction and of course everything being moved to Jerusalem. So this prophet Ahia met him on the way. He had clothed himself with a new garment and the two were alone in the field. Now, two people now again is Yeroboam and this prophet. The prophet kind of shows up in a nice shiny new threads and he shows up and says, Ahia took hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into 12 pieces and said to Yeroboam, take for yourself 10 pieces. Now, what would you do? We don't know that they have any relationship prior to this. So Daniel's walking somewhere, and all of a sudden this guy comes walking up to him. He's got a whole new outfit on, and all of a sudden he just goes and he starts tearing all of his clothes off in front of Daniel. I don't know. There's a part of me that thinks, run's a good idea at a moment like this. Let's get out of this. This is awkward, but the only way out is to get out. And then he goes, now, of these 12 pieces I tore of my clothing to shreds, you can have 10 of them. Pick any 10. My first thought is anything but the boxers. Well, anyways, so with that, he goes, now take it. Now imagine you're going, why? What, what are you saying? And by the way, let's just face it. As weird as it is, it gets your attention. That's the point. At that point, you know, Daniel's like, you have my attention. He goes, behold, I will tear. And it says, 
Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon, and I'll give it the ten tribes to you. You shall not have one tribe for the sake of my servant David. Notice he doesn't say Solomon. And for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, because they've forsaken me. They worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Hamash, the god of the Moabites, and Milcom, the god of the people of Ammon. They haven't walked in my ways to do what is right in my eyes, to keep the statutes and the judgments as did my father David. It's like they're, they're doing what's right in their own eyes, just like the book of Judges. However, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand because I have made him ruler in the, all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose because he kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and give it to you, well, uh, ten tribes. And to his son I will give one tribe that my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen for myself to put my name there. So I will take you and you shall reign over all your heart's desires, which tells us it sounds like the guy wants to rule. And you shall be king over Israel. Then it shall be, and notice here, please do not miss this, because next week, this is something we need to always have peppered in our mind. God gives Jeroboam the opportunity to have a lasting legacy himself. This is a prophet of God speaking to Jeroboam, and he says, it shall be, if you heed all that I command you, walk in my ways. And do what is right in my sight to keep my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did. Then I will be with you and build for you an enduring house as I built for David and I will give Israel to you. And I will afflict the descendants of David because of this, but not forever. Now, apparently Solomon has heard this story. Remember when Saul discovered that David really was the better man? Well, clearly Solomon's discovering the same. So verse 40 says, When Solomon therefore sought to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam arose and fled where? Of course, to Egypt, to Shishak, the king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Now the rest of the Acts of Solomon and all that he did in all of his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? And the period that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. Then Solomon rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. What's the last thing recorded that Solomon did besides die? I was trying to make somebody else dead. Could you imagine that's the last thing? You know, you always kind of remember how you, how you come in and leave. You always kind of remember the beginning and the end. The beginning, you've got this kid who God says, I just want to bless you. What do you want? I need wisdom. I'm a kid. I don't know how to rule these people. How does he end? I'm going to kill that guy because God wants to make him my, my son's replacement. Now hear me in this as we go to prayer. The difference between David and Solomon in the simplest sense is that David was honestly, honestly, not just playing a game here, honestly willing to admit that what he had done was wrong. Sooner or later, you'd come to this point. You're like, you know what? What I have done is sin against you, God. Even when everybody else said it wasn't a sin, you never changed your mind. And against you, God, against you, I've sinned. Nobody else would even say that. But you and you alone were the only one who really still called this sin. I'm wrong. And I need you to forgive me. Please forgive me. Create in me a clean heart, God, please. Renew a right spirit within me. Please don't cast me away from your presence like Saul. Please don't take your spirit from me like you did 
with Saul? Would you restore to me the joy of your salvation, please, Lord? Would you please do that? Restore to me how beautiful it was when it was just you saving me. In the midst of his sin, David would ultimately realize, God, I have been faithless in my sin, but I do know who my Savior is. And I'm coming back. Solomon, on the other hand, he doesn't end that way. Solomon ends with, you know, even though this is what I've done, he ends a lot like Saul. Where in the end of his life, you just don't see that repentance you really want to see that gives you this warm fuzzy inside. Now look at Christians. If you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, I mean, if you haven't, you're certainly not a Christian. Then know that there is a God who wants to forgive you, but it starts with confession. And confession, homologamas in the Greek, when we get to the New Testament, it means to have the same words, the same reasoning. If God says it's wrong, it's wrong. It doesn't matter how many people or even what the church or the Pope decides. If God said it's wrong, it's wrong. And we lay it before him and go, God, this is wrong. Please forgive me of it and remove my desire for this ever again. But Solomon, unfortunately, doesn't end that way. Instead, Solomon wants to remove anything that becomes the consequence for that sin. And look at removing the consequence is not hating the sin. Who doesn't hate the consequence for their sin? It makes your life stink. But if all you hate is the consequence and not the sin, the moment the consequence is lessened, you'll be back in the sin in a heartbeat. And God doesn't want that. But Jesus took all of those sins and he died on the cross for them. Please hear me, not just the ones you've done, but the ones you've yet to. And don't think that that's in any way a license to go and do more, because if that's the case, you're not making Jesus the Lord, you should. But we say, you know what, Jesus? I need you to be the Lord of my life, as you've been the Savior over my sins and the guilt that comes from it. I need you to be the Lord of my life so that it no longer, sin no longer is the mastery. I don't want to crave Egypt anymore. We accept the gift of Jesus leaving Egypt and never wanting to go back. That's why God says, if you're going to have a king, somebody that's going to lead you, somebody that's actually going to be making decisions for you, do not let them in any way have an eye on Egypt. Why in the world would you want to dip into the pot of Egypt when instead you have the endless pool of God? You have the living water of God or the broken cisterns of Egypt. What exactly, which one do you really think? Do you think you should go for both? Here's the problem. If you get three glasses of pure water, but get the fourth glass from the toilet, it still pollutes you, even though you're like, yeah, but I've gotten these other glasses of pure water. And God's like, don't fool yourself. Don't go both places. And that's my heart's desire as we pray now. That as Christians, God remove our hunger at all for Egypt. But also that we would really accept the gift that when we have done something stupid, that we never take that guilt anywhere but to Jesus. Isn't it amazing how the enemy lies about how small? He tries to make the sin look really, really small before you do it. And then once you've done it, he tries to make it really, really big so you won't go to God. Small enough so you'll walk away from him and then too big to bring it to him. Well, there's no sin Jesus hasn't paid for in this sense. So go and get it right with the Lord. Pray with me, would you please?
God, I want to thank you for this beautiful text. It is definitely rough to read, but it is what we need to hear. And I do pray, Lord, for every one of us, myself included, that we would not crave anything that Egypt offers us. Lord, that our heart would not be duplicitive. It would not be cut in two. But rather, God, that our life would be pure of heart, single-hearted. There's no dichotomous part of us, Lord, where, where there's like, this is the secular and this is the sacred. We want it all to be yours. So, Lord, whatever it is that we look at on the other side of the fence where Egypt still live, where they still dwell, don't let our hearts be open to it, Lord, please. But rather, open our hearts entirely to you to give you free reign over every area. And Lord, in the area of, of our, 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 in regards to who we are as a person, our identity in regards to who we are in purpose, God, in regards to these appetites within us, Lord, for importance and for security, Lord, and for relationship. These things, God, where we confess to you that even within the church in Mass, there seems like there's open doors that should not be there to where we somehow say, well, Jesus, we need you, but we also need this. So, Lord, please, would you just seal in our hearts that you be the one thing we need And then we lay all of our wants before you and say, Lord, put them in proper priority and say, if it's something we need, you will provide. If it's something we want, you may not. But that's because you don't want to give me something that's not good for me. That's not right or that will ever take me away from you. So Jesus, we want to confess that uh, that though our hearts have developed appetites for sin, we ask you to forgive us, Lord, for those sins that we do crave and, and, and get a taste for. And we ask you to replace that for a healthy appetite for you, for righteousness. We confess, Jesus, that you're more than just our Savior, more than just the payment for all of our sins, but our Lord, who has a right to say yes and no, to which we have a right to submit, and that we would not chase after foreign things that we know have declared war against your righteousness. But rather, Lord, tonight, please, in this room, give us an abhorrence for Egypt, because we know Egypt is the place of bondage because it's a place of running from you now. And there is no freedom when we run from you. So tonight, Jesus, please, be our Lord and Savior. Please. And may we demonstrate that in every choice we make, in every facet and area of our life, you have free reign. Take your rightful place and make yourself at home in our lives, we pray. Jesus, in your name. Amen.